So today we begin a new series entitled Seven, Seven, Churches Then and Now. And we're going to talk about really specifically the seven churches of Asia that, that Paul, or excuse me, that John wrote to. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But are there more than seven churches? Yes. Why then and now? What's that all about? Because there's a message that Jesus has for us or had for the seven churches of the first century that were referenced here, but also for us today. But church is an interesting word. It's an interesting word, and I just have, I've prepared a few images to just kind of give you an idea of what I mean. You know, church, is it a building? Yeah, it is, but it's more than that. You know, is, um, is, is it a place of extreme boredom? It can be. Been there, done that. It can be, but it, it should be more than that. Is it a place that, is church stereotyped? Uh, yeah. Saturday Night Live and Dana Carvey and the church lady made sure the church was stereotyped. There was no question. And then, and then I would say, is it an irrelevant relic of pointlessness? To some, it is. Some people say, where are you going on a Sunday morning? How pointless is that? What, is, what difference is this going to make in your life? And that's somewhat of a you know, pervasive attitude. Uh, as you may know or may not know, I was raised, uh, you know, I was raised as a pastor's kid, so I'm a PK, and so this environment of the church is really all I've ever known. I would fondly say I was kind of born on the second row of the church, and my mom would take issue with that, of course, but that's kind of the way I, I recall. It's how I, it's how my life is framed. Everything about church is is just deeply ingrained in me. So I have a, a, I have a deep affection, deep affection for the church. You know, the church has shaped me. Uh, the church has challenged me. It's corrected me. It's guided me. And what I also can say, the church has loved me. And uh, there's, that can be challenging at times for all of us. But to know that the church is a place where there's acceptance and care and love over our lives is significant. And I can honestly say, I can honestly say with the psalmist, the Psalm 122 and, and verse number one, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I'm excited when it, it, it comes around to Sunday and we have the opportunity to gather together and to worship God together. I, just say it this way, I love the church. I love the church. Do I love the building? Well, sure, it's a tool. Do I love the building? But I love the church. Do, do, I, do, do I love all of the things that happen? Well, yeah, but it's not just about what happens in this place. The church, the church is best defined in this phrase. The church is more than a building. It's more than a stereotype. It's more than a cliche. It is who we are. It's who we are, not where we go. It is an organism characterized by spiritual life, it is everyone, everywhere who has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So I'm going to say it again. I love the church. And what does that mean? It means that I love the church, the people for whom God has sent his son and given his life for us. We're a part of the church. We're a part of something amazing and something great. And as much as I love the church and as much as you may love the church, I want to tell you right now, Jesus loves the church more than you do and more than I do. He has given his life for the church. It is his bride. It is a special, a special thing to Christ. 
Now, near the end of the first century, the Apostle John wrote a letter. He wrote a letter to specifically seven churches. Now, there were more than seven churches. I'm, that's a given. But he wrote to seven specific churches. Jesus had said, write this letter. But that letter, that letter has been somewhat uh, considered to be confusing. And so we stay away from it. We avoid the confusion. Because, you know, you begin to read this letter, and you see things like, Volks, like, like locusts the size of Volkswagens. You know, you, you begin to see images that make no sense, and you hear numbers that still cause us all a little bit of fright. When we see the number 666 come up, we wonder, what is that? Oh, we're going to change that number. I saw a license plate like that the other day, and I'm thinking, that guy needs to change his license plate. You know, it's also a letter that's not understandable. Now, this is how some people perceive it. It's not understandable. So we look at it and say, I'm not going to, what's the point? Why am I going to take any time with this? I don't get it. I don't get it. I'm not going to take time looking at something that looks more like the twilight zone than it does anything that I've read anywhere in the pages of Scripture. So I'm not going to do it. It's not understandable. And the third thing I I look at, it's somewhat overemphasized by some, that it's really the only book that people spend any time with. And I have some experience with that. You see, people over over the course of history have so overemphasized it, and then they have superimposed They have superimposed today's headlines over over this particular letter in an attempt to make the biblical text fit our thoughts and concepts of today's personalities, events, and nations into somewhat of a stretched framework of unique and sensational prophetic ideas. And there's nothing, that's just not, that's not a good place to be so probably by now you figured out I'm talking about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is, a, is an amazing letter. And it is a letter that should not be avoided, but it is a letter that should be embraced. And so over the next nine weeks, we're going to talk about seven churches then and now. There's a message that Jesus gave to the church in the first century that's just as applicable for us today in the 21st. Revelation and its alternative title, Apocalypse, really comes from the Latin and the Greek words that mean unveiling, unveiling. And the book will unveil images and scenes and truth and through figurative language that will, that would have, this is really important, that would have made sense to the first century audience. So if we just say, if we're the only generation that could really understand the book of Revelation, then what's the point for those to whom it was originally written? There wouldn't be. They understood what was there. I don't know if you watch um, Hellman Garden television. I'm not suggesting you should or shouldn't, but I watch probably more of HGTV than I should. But it's enjoyable, and it's kind of white noise at times, and so it kind of works into my life. But we watch pretty religiously Fixer Upper with Chip and Joanna Gaines. Now, I'm just going to tell you, if you've ever seen it, you know Chip Gaines is a nut. I mean, he is just a nut. There's, there's no other way to f- characterize that man. He is a nut. And Joanna is incredibly creative, and they're, they're an amazing team to watch. One of the things they did in all of the episodes is they would take this, this house that desperately needed fixing, they would remodel it, do everything. Then they would put this big banner in front of the house with the, the picture of the original house there, of the way it was when they bought it. And then they would say something like this, do you want to see your fixer-upper? And the couple would say, oh, yes, yes. And so they would roll this banner up 
they would roll the banner aside, revealing or unveiling the house that's new. It's essentially what Revelation does. It unveils things that helps us understand a message that Jesus wants to give to us. Revelation was most likely written, and there's a number of opinions on this, and was most likely, and I say it that way guardedly because we don't know exactly, but most likely written during the reign of Domitian, Roman emperor from 81 to 96. Now, it could be some earlier, but that's much of the general, general opinion. But why is that important? The persecution of those following Christ was intense, to say the least. And by the time the Domitian began to, to rule the Roman Empire, emperor worship had really been, become well-established. And why is that important? Because the writer of Revelation, John, he writes in exile because of his faith in Christ. You see, there would have been an obvious conflict. If emperor worship, as emperor worship took hold in the Roman Empire, there was a declaration to be made, Caesar is Lord. Well, that's a direct conflict to having someone who follows Christ, who would say, Jesus is Lord. And based upon that, John was exiled to a little island out in the middle of the Aegean Sea, 10 miles by 6 miles, a stony little, little place called Patmos. And he's, this is where he received this letter that he would then take later to the churches of Asia. Revelation was a circular letter. And what does that mean? It just means that once it was read in one church, it would be taken to another church and read so that all of the churches would benefit from that message. And just so you get a little bit of a glimpse of, of the region of the world that we're talking, look at this map. It give, it's a little hard to see, but this gives you the idea of where these seven churches were located in Asia. Now, were there more than seven churches in Asia? Yes. But for the purposes that God had and understood, the seven churches that were singled out for this message are the ones that we are going to spend some time with. So as we move into this over these next nine weeks, I encourage you on a couple of fronts. There's a message for us in this. This isn't just a message for the first century. It's a message for the 21st, and it's a message to us at Crossroads Church. And I encourage you to open up your heart and let God speak life to you through these, this incredible letter that we're going to unpack. Now, we're not going to do all 22 chapters of the book of Revelation. We're going to spend our time in the first three chapters and then a message at the end of this series in the nine weeks, kind of pulling it all together and the return of Christ. So I encourage you to be a part of it. Podcasting is a great way to stay up. Also, we stream the first service, so that's another way to keep up with this series. So this morning, I'm going to talk about three things. We're going to spend some time in chapter one. I felt like it was too important to not spend a few moments kind of giving some context, I guess you could say, to the churches and how the letter came about by just going right to the churches that begin in chapter two. So we're going to spend some time this morning in chapter one. But before we do, pray with me if you would. Jesus, thank you for all that you're going to speak into our lives today. And I pray in these next few moments, as we've gathered, you would truly speak life to us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Three things, three things. First is this. The message that Jesus gives is an urgent message, and it's a practical one. It's urgent, and it's practical. So look at verse 1 of Revelation chapter 1 through verse 3. The revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed 
is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Let's talk about the urgency of this. Now, if you're like me and Marcy, I'm getting more email today than I am regular mail. I, you know, I get a ton of email every day, and I get less and less mail in my mailbox. Most of it's advertisement and, you know, stuff that ends up in the recycling more than any place else. But once in a while, I'm going to get a letter that's going to have big red letters on it, and it's going to say, urgent, immediate attention required. And I'm telling you, once in a while, it takes me back. I mean, I think, ah, what about this? Well, no, most of the time I am concerned. No, all of the time I'm concerned. When I see urgent, I jump at it. And then I figure out this is a marketing ploy to try and sell me something. And I dismiss it and I tear it up and goes in the recycling. But I will tell you, it got my attention. It got my attention. And so much of what John speaks needs to be understood in that, in that vein. There's an urgency about this message. Now, why do I say that? John says, makes two different statements in these first three verses that are so critical. He, he says, what must soon take place, and then he adds, because the time is near. The revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation from Jesus Christ is a message that is urgent. It's an urgent message, not just for those in century one, but for us in century 21. How can I say that? Two things. The first is this. The cultural climate that we presently live within is anti-God, anti-Christian, and anti-church. I'm going to say it again. The cultural climate in which we live is anti-God, anti-church, and anti-Christian. Now, in August of this past year, in our vision message, I spent a lot of time unpacking some thoughts from John S. Dickerson's book entitled The Great Evangelical Recession. And when I read the book, I was, I was startled. I was blown away. It, wasn't, it weren't things necessarily that I didn't expect to see, but it just took it to a whole new level for me. In the book, John describes kind of the, the, cult, the, the, the current climate directed to the church. And these are the words that he used to, to, to essentially describe the climate today regarding the church. Hated, dividing, bankrupt, bleeding, and sputtering. The, the church in America, and I'm not even talking about the church in the world, the church in America, the evangelical church in America continues to decline. There is a cultural climate outside the church that is anti-God, that is anti-Christian, and that is anti-church. The second reason I say this is, is that there's assault. There is an assault on values such as life, marriage, and identity. I'm absolutely appalled and brokenhearted as what has happened these last 10 days in the state of New York. And four other states, four other states at least in our nation, are considering similar legislation to literally allow people to take the life of a fully formed child. That is an abomination before God. And that is an assault on the values that we hold dear as followers of Christ. The message, the message is urgent. It is not one that we can just patiently sit back and say, you know something, it really doesn't matter. Everything is going to be just like it's always been. God had a message to ancient Israel. and He said to the prophet Amos, he says, woe to you who are complacent. 
That's a strong word. Woe. In other words, wake up. Don't be self-satisfied. You see, I look back at my formative years and it seemed like that the church was always the same. Kind of accepted, kind of not. No big deal. Kind of live your life the way everything's fine. And honestly, as time has gone forward now, these however many years, things continue to change. You see, to be complacent is to be self-satisfied. It is the opposite of having a sense of urgency. And we, as the church of Jesus Christ, need to embrace the message that Jesus presents to us with a sense of urgency. And that's what we're going to talk about because being lukewarm, embracing compromise, being something we're not, breaking under persecution, forsaking our first love, closing a door that should always remain open, moral compromise, these are urgent messages to the church. These are not just messages to those outside the church. These are messages to those inside the church. And that's why it's critical for us to embrace it, because the time is near. We do not know what tomorrow may hold. Francis Chan, great phrase. He said, we have become dangerously comfortable believers, ooze with wealth, and and let let their addictions to comfort and security numb the radical urgency of the gospel. We dare not become comfortable where we are, but we need to remain diligent and aware and continue to present this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 13. This is all the more urgent, Paul says, for you know how late it is. Time is running out. And here's the words. Wake up. Wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Understand that if this message was urgent 21 centuries ago, to a church that was in the midst of persecution, how much more urgent is it today, 21 centuries later? Because there is coming a day when Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, will return for his church without blemish, without wrinkle, ready and prepared as a bride for her groom. And that day is coming soon. You say, how can you say that soon? How can you say that? I can say it for this reason. The word of God declares that the coming of Jesus Christ is soon. And if it was soon when the biblical writers addressed it, it's sooner now than it was. Amen? Just kind of the way it is. I don't know if it'll be today or tomorrow or 100 years from now. It doesn't matter because the timing of God is different than the timing we embrace. The second thing, it's, it's not only an urgent message, it's a practical one. And I, and I think... This is where we, we get lost, essentially, in the weeds of revelation. We say, what does it mean to me? This is where it's irrelevant, it's pointless, I don't understand it, I'm not going to read it, not going to spend time with it. But there is a very powerful truth given in verse number 3 of chapter 1. He says that this is the revelation of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus, or the revelation from Jesus Christ. It's a message to the church. But then he says this, And blessed, you ready? Blessed as you read it. Blessed as you hear it. (laughs) And then blessed if you obey it. Okay, can I just tell you, if there's blessing connected somewhere, I'm all in. Because if obedience brings blessing, then I'm going to obey. If hearing, reading, and literally the, the language of the New Testament says, when it speaks of reading, reading it aloud, 
Reading it aloud is really the essence. But reading this book will produce a blessing. Hearing this book will produce a blessing. And obeying it will produce a blessing. So let's be obedient and be blessed. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, For while I was with you, I was determined to be consumed with one topic, Jesus, the crucified Messiah. Why do I use, why do I use that verse? For this reason. The book of Revelation, remember, it's the revelation from Jesus or other translations, the revelation of Jesus. The point being this book, this letter of Revelation is Jesus-centered. It is Jesus from the beginning, Jesus to the end. And I will tell you, when you invest your life being fixed and focused upon Jesus, there will be a blessing in your life. Grateful for that. But don't forget to obey because reading and hearing is good, but James reminds us in James 1, don't just listen to God's word. Don't just listen. You must do what it says. Be obedient to it and there will be a blessing. So secondly, this morning, it's a message. It's a message that's comforting and hopeful. Because that first part, that, that urgency thing, that kind of gets us kind of, <laughs> okay, can we get on to something a little happier, you know, because that urgent thing, that's kind of, you know, what do I do now? It's also comforting and hopeful. Look at verse number four, chapter one. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. From the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve as God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who, wa- who is, who was, and is to come, the Almighty. How can you not be encouraged reading that? Woo, that's good. And there's, there's reason behind what John is saying. It's not just random. Think about it. He talks about the eternal nature of God. That should be encouraging. He gives us a unique description of the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits before the throne. He he gives us a powerful reminder of who Jesus is, but then what Jesus has done. He has freed us from our sins, and he's given us an exclamation of praise. John then moves on, and he offers a declaration that caps off, capping it off really with the words of Jesus and saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning. I mean, God Almighty, it's amazing. There's comfort and hope. And what I love this, I love this phrase that John uses right here. He says, the ruler of the kings of the earth. What would that say to a suffering follower of Jesus Christ who is now suffering because he would not declare that Caesar is Lord? John refers and says, don't worry about it because you serve the one who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Caesar may come and Caesar will go, but Jesus will remain. Man. How would you not be just, oh, this isn't, you're ready to go. You know, it's kind of like getting that pep talk in the locker room before you run out on the floor. Or as the Rams run out today to just beat the Patriots. Did I just say that? I couldn't resist. I had to do something. (laughs) It's an encouragement. There's comfort in these words. I love that. I love that. There's three things of comfort and hope. The first is that Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And I think sometimes in our tradition, we, 
we look at this coming of the Lord as being this great escape from all of the crud that's going on in our world. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of crud going on in our world. I don't mind escaping a little bit of that. I get it. But it's not, it, it's not just that. It's not running away from something, but it's the hope of the church. That's what Scripture teaches us. Jesus said in John 14, he said, I will come back and take you to be with me. How cool is that? 1 Thessalonians 4, I love this. I love it. For the Lord himself, Paul says, will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. First, first, the believers who have died, I love this, will rise from their graves. You have to understand the Thessalonians were concerned. What about all of our loved ones who have died? What happens then? What happens to them? And Paul says it, don't worry about it. They're the first ones to go. And then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. Titus chapter 2, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When, when John is writing to this church that's under attack and difficulty for just naming Christ, he's saying, please understand, look up, because your redemption, your salvation is drawing near. Don't be disheartened. Jesus, your Lord, the great God and Savior, he is coming back for you. Man, I, I would feel like I can do this. I can continue to endure because he's coming for me. So powerful. I just wrote this. Jesus is coming. It's not our great escape. It's our hope. There is more better coming our way. I'm excited about that second part of comfort and hope is that Jesus will set matters right. Now, what, is, what, what do I mean by that? Well, there's a lot of talk about justice today. Social justice criminal justice, ah, good night, every kind of other economic justice, it just goes on and on and on. And frankly, I think we get a little fatigued. You know, we, we get a little put back. Why is this happening? There's just no justice. Things aren't, they're just not good, they're not right. But at the end, but the end of it all, Jesus is going to set matters right. He will bring justice where injustice has existed. Understand the followers of Christ who are being persecuted for their faith, how many of them felt this isn't fair. All I have done is given my life to Jesus. It's not fair. It's not fair. And I would, I would suggest this morning, many of us at many times have said the same thing. Things are just not fair. I don't get it. I don't understand it. And in this life, we may never. But I want you to know and I want you to take heart. There is coming a day when Jesus Christ will set matters right. I'm grateful. I'm grateful. Acts 17, verse 31 he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. Jesus will set matters right. And the third part of comfort and hope, and I want you to hear this. Oh, don't miss this. God has everything under control. Your world may be absolutely sideways today. Your world may be upside down. And you don't understand all, and I'm not here to be able to help you understand everything, but I am here to declare a truth that God has 
everything under, the, under control. Our world is messed up. Trade wars, real wars, economic pressure and crisis and political upheaval. And the beat goes on and on and on. But I want you to know this is my Father's world. This belongs to Jesus. This belongs to our Father. And He is the one who controls all things. Our lives included. Revelation 1, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to Come the Almighty. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You see, he is the beginning and the ending. Nothing, and I mean nothing, surprises the one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come, the Almighty. Nothing surprises him. And I want you to hear this this phrase I found or this quote I found. Caesar might rule citizens of an empire in limited ways. God the Almighty rules the cosmos, and God who is the beginning and the end will guide the course of history long after Caesar's death. And I will tell you, God is still in control no matter what the world may say, no matter how anti-God, how anti-church, how anti-Christians might be, Our God is in control of everything and your life included. Hallelujah. Don't ever miss that. Don't miss it. Because life's going to go crazy on you. And it's easy to just fall into the, the darkness of that. But God has all things in control. And lastly, this morning, the message is focused and it's humbling. It's focused and it's humbling. The last portion of chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of the Lord and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches of Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool and as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He placed his right hand on me and said, Don't, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living when I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It's such a dynamic presentation of who Jesus is and what he observed and what John observed. And so in this encounter with Jesus, there's some things I just want to leave you there. The first one is this. John, speaking of John, he understands their suffering. He gets it. He gets it. You see, the church, as we've said, is enduring persecution. And John can relate. He's on the Isle of Patmos. He is in exile because of the faith. And he says, I am a companion with you in your suffering. I get it. I'm right there with you. What an encouragement. What incredible, what incredible help and and hope that is. You know, here's the thing. 
the church, as was in the first century, is getting all kinds of persecution. But what about today? How does this apply to us? How does John relate to us? Well, I'm going to give you an assignment. Homework. Well, homework. Here we go. So go home today and, go down Mr. and, and ask Mr. Google a question. Okay? Ask Mr. Google the following question. Just say this. Persecuted church. Just do that and see what you come up with. Now, when I did that this past week, little 14.3 million hits on persecuted church. Okay? Then, I want you to, here's one more part of that. I want you to say persecuted church in America and see what you come up with. Ready? 6.1 million hits. Let me tell you, it's not coming, it's here. And while we may not experience it like some of our brothers and sisters in much of the world today, it's here. And to read what John says, he says, I am your companion in suffering. That's a focused message. It reminds me what's going on here. It helps me. 2 Timothy chapter 3, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. What does it look like for you? An antagonism from family and friends? At the workplace, there's just this pushback. There's the ridicule. There's the stereotypes. There's the cliches. There's the rolling eyes. It's the persecution. It's here. The second thing is, as I look at this as being a focused message and one that's humbling, is that when John says, he, he, he says it this way, or how I would phrase it, John worships even in difficult circumstances. And I've always been fascinated by this phrase in Revelation 1. Where he says, in the, on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. Now, there's a variety of ways that that is interpreted by, by scholars. I understand that. But from the very simple reading of that, here's, why, here's what I take away. He's in a difficult place. And on the Lord's Day, probably the day that we remember as the day of resurrection when Jesus came, came victoriously from the grave, Sunday, as it were, the Lord's Day. John says, on the Lord's Day, I was in the Spirit. What does that mean? It means in a rocky cave, on an exi- in exile, on an island in the middle of the Aegean Sea, John was in the Spirit, spending time with God, letting God speak into his life. We are privileged at Crossroads Church. This is a beautiful building. God has blessed us. You can go out to the cafe and get a donut, a bagel, hot cup of coffee. It's dry in the winter. It's cool in the summer. It's comfortable. But do we take for granted the privilege of our worship? John didn't. He was in the presence of the Lord on the, on the Lord's day, in, un, in difficult times, challenging times. John's task, this is the next thing, he was tasked with an incredible responsibility. Writing a message that was challenging, there's no question. You read the book of Revelation, you see this challenging. And it's very pointed. As we go through the message of the seven churches, you're going to see it. Tough responsibility. But he was up to the task. It was a hard task. But one of the things that it's important to remember is Matthew 16. This is a dialogue that Jesus was having 
you know, who do men say that I am? But what about you? And he was having this conversation with the disciples. And, and so he, here's what we read in Matthew 16. He says, but what about you, he asked. What are you, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Why do I put this phrase or, or this scripture in? It's important to understand the task is a difficult one. It's a large responsibility. But Jesus was making sure that John understood it was he that would build the church. It was he who would empower him to conquer, rather to accomplish the task that he has given to him. And I would suggest the very same for us this morning. Every one of us in this room have a task to accomplish. We are to take the good news of Jesus Christ to every nation, and we are to proclaim that Jesus is Lord. The church is not necessarily built upon Peter. It is built upon the confession that Peter made that Jesus Christ will build his church and not even even the gates of hell will overcome it. So understand as you accomplish the task that God has given to you of being a good parent, being a good grandparent, being a model citizen, being an influence in your environments, taking the good news of Jesus Christ wherever it may be, know this, that Jesus, the Lord of the church, is right there with you. He will build his church through you, and the gates of hell will not even overcome it. You can accomplish what God has called you to, called you to be and called you to do because of who Jesus is. Also, we take away a, a focused and, and humbling message when we see the humility of John. So I just say it this way. He was humbled in the presence of Jesus. He was humbled. Now, I don't know. You may have, maybe, maybe I'll say it this way. Ever been separated from a friend or maybe a family member for a long period of time? And here's usually what happens. You've, maybe it's been years, and you finally get back together, and the, one of the first things that goes, goes through your mind, or I'll say this goes through my mind, say, wow, the years have not been good to you, right? You know, the changes that happen, and it's not that you're being, it's not that you're being ugly or just, it's true. Believe it or not, I used to have dark hair, and it was really thick, and it was really long. It was down on my shoulders, and I will tell you, people that see me now, they go, what happened to you, dude? Where did that all come from? Where, where did it all go and why this, you know? Why do I say that? Because when John saw Jesus, it had been approximately 60 years since Jesus had ascended. And he heard this voice that sounded so majestic. And when he turned around, he saw one with a golden sash. He was, so, his, he was, he was lit up in ways that he could not even look at him. His, the symbol of a sword coming from his mouth. This was an intense moment, and what was John's response? He fell at his feet, though dead. At the moment, he did not recognize in whose presence he was until Jesus put his hand on his shoulders, and he said, don't be afraid, it's me. Why do I say it? Because when we come into this place and we worship, I want you to know Jesus is in this place. The manifest presence of God is here when the company of the righteous gather together. Jesus, by his spirit, is here because his spirit is in each one of us, the church of Jesus Christ. He is here among us, and we should be awed in his presence. In much the same way, we should fall at his feet as though dead. Not in fear but an awesome respect. 
of in whose presence we are. Just like Solomon would say, therefore, stand in awe of God. And frankly, I should be more awed than I am. Now that's not O-D-D. That's A-W-E-D. Some of you would say, you are odd, buddy. You've got that ODD thing going on. I need to be more odd than I am. And lastly, this morning, John recognizes Jesus is the focus of it all. And that really is the message of Revelation. Jesus is in the center. You notice the, the imagery? The seven lampstands. The seven, the seven angels. And where's Jesus? In the center of it all. Jesus needs to be the center of, he is the center of the church. And he needs to be and should be the center of our life. He must be the center of our church, of Crossroads Church. This church is not about the building. This church is not about me. And really the church is not about us. It is about Jesus at the center. And our focus needs to remain upon him. Our attention to him, just as Hebrews would say, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of God, the right hand of the throne of God. Remain focused on Jesus. So as we close this morning, here's the thought I want to leave with you. And you're going to hear me say it numerous times over the next number of weeks. And it's just the repetitive phrase that you hear again and again and again in the book of Revelation. You ready? Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a call for us, people of God, the church, to open our ears to the Spirit of God and say, what are you saying to me? Because I'm going to tell you right now, over these next nine weeks, God is going to speak to us. Don't be afraid of that. Just as John was overwhelmed in the presence of God, or in the presence of Christ, Jesus put his hand, don't be afraid. It's me. It's me. I was the one. You remember me, John, right? John went about the task of writing this incredible letter. God's going to speak to us in a variety of ways over the next eight weeks now. Open your heart to what he says. As he speaks, say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I want to tell you, as your pastor, every message, and I, I don't say this lightly, I, I really don't, I understand what I'm saying. Every message, God deals with me first before it ever comes here. I have to wrestle this. I ask the question, God, what are you saying to me? Or what, where do I need the adjustment? You ever been to a chiropractor and you're kind of all crooked and messed up and a few cracks here and a pull there and a yank there and a, you get up and you go, wow, I'm standing up straight again. Sometimes I need the Holy Spirit to adjust me. I want him to do that for me. I want him to do that for us. And 
as the church of Jesus Christ, with Jesus in the center, we will say, my ears are open and my heart is receptive. Speak, for I'm listening. Let that be your prayer over these next weeks together. Jesus, thank you for your word this morning. Be the center of our lives and be the center of our church. Thank you. Thank you.